Welcome to We Should Known. I'm Danny Visser, joined by Glenn James. Hi, Glenn. G'day, g'day. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening. And also our very special guest today, who is a risk specialist, Nick Fanto. Hi, Nick. Thanks hey, for Danny. joining us. Glenn, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in, Nick. So Nick is from Orbital Advisory, and we'll get to your business journey very, very soon. But before we do, I just wanted to thank One Path Zurich for getting behind We Should Know in this podcast. It's an industry initiative, and we want to be for everybody in the financial advice industry. And we can't do this, you know, the production costs and the editing without help. And we really want to thank One Path Zurich. I've personally had a great experience with them uh, for many years as an advisor, and I'm sure a lot of you have too. Uh, there's a link in the show note if you want to learn more. So, Nick, I've got the financial advice register on my desktop right now. So, congratulations, you're an advisor. And you have been since 2008. So, fair while now. Yeah, yeah. Probably done your 10,000 hours. Easy. Now, tell us a little bit about your business and how long you've been self-employed. Perfect. So, um, Orbital Advisory is my business. I'm a risk specialist, so we only give advice on insurance. I've been self-employed for 12 years now which is a scary thought, so I'm starting to show my age, but... um, How old are you? I'm 36, 36. So I was pretty naive, I think, when I look back as probably more around what actually goes into running a business when I started it, but I was hungry and um, I wanted to work for myself. So I rolled the dice and had a crack and we're Mm -hmm. still standing, so I'm I'm proud of that. So you've always worked for yourself? Well, I... Funnily enough, I started life as a personal trainer. I was working in fitness, which, you know, it might be hard to believe right now, but that was a long time ago. So I had a guy just sort of tap me on the shoulder who was a financial advisor, an A&P advisor out of Glenhaven. And he said, hey, what are you going to do with your life? Pretty much was one of those conversations. Mm. And I didn't really have an answer for it. And he said to me, you should consider getting into financial planning. Come join us. We'll put you through a course. And it just went from there. It was just right place, right time. I was looking for something more. So I worked with him for a short period. And then I took a job with a business called AG Private Advisory, who were doing a lot of work with Deloitte partners and their clients. Um, And GFC happened. They became insolvent. And I had a couple of people get in my ear about setting up my own business. So I did it. And I decided to specialize purely in risk at that time. Why risk? I'm the kind of guy that, I'm a a relationship guy. I want to read the sports pages, not the financial review. And for me, um, I think the thing that I liked about risk is that it's an emotive conversation and I I feel really comfortable in that space. I also think when it comes to managing people's money, you have a lot of investment committees making decisions that as an advisor, if you're an employed advisor, you're on selling. And I was never really comfortable with the fact that somebody else was making decisions that I was then putting forward. Peddling, yeah. Yeah, correct. And if if they got it wrong, well, it was my name attached. So insurance is a little bit different where they were my numbers, they were my products, my structures, and I just felt I had a better understanding of it. So I decided to, yeah, just specialise in insurance. And I'm a bit of a believer in you do one thing and you do one thing really well. Mm. What's the, I guess, most rewarding part of your job as an insurance advisor? I just love people, yeah. Glenn. You know, I've I've been lucky enough that over 12 years, I've now built the business to a point where there's myself and I've got three staff and I've got three really great 
staff members. Are they non-revenue generating staff? All back office, yep. Um, so they allow me to just go out and meet people and see my clients and see my referral partners and tell my story, do things like this. And that, that's just what I enjoy. I just get to meet people. I meet new people. I make new friends. Um, you provide value. You interact. And I just, I, get a, I, I just get off on doing that. So if we rewind 12 years and you're at the starting gate of this new business journey, how did you actually start? Like it's pretty daunting. You've, you've, this is my new business. How did you, like what was the foot in front of the other? What did you do every day just to sort of start? What was your process? I, I actually... It's, it's funny when you look back just at how blind and clueless I actually was. You know, a lot of people that start businesses have, have come from like a corporate background and they've got contacts and they've got referral partners who back them and say, hey, if you leave said business, we'll, we'll back you, we'll work with you. And I didn't have that. So I joined, my first licensee was a business called Patronus that didn't last very long and they ended up um, moving into the Macquarie Raz. Um, and they had this whole model that it was a risk-only licensee and they were going to partner with accounting firms and professionals and, and partner them with advisors. So they introduced me to one or two accountants. There was one accounting firm in particular in Newcastle and I'm Sydney-based who um, were interested in meeting with me and they were open to it. So I used to drive up there every second Friday and just have a coffee with them. I'd drive two hours there, two hours back for a coffee just to try and find a client. And in my first year... I know I made 30,000 bucks. The business generated $30,000 in the, in the first year. Like it was really, really hard. You know, I, I remember being down to my last 50 bucks thinking, what am I doing? But you just keep pushing. And so it was just knock on one door. It was a lot of grind. It was a lot of grind. So it's, you, yeah. Yeah. So you cash flowed the business. There was no debt involved. Mate, I was 24. I was at home with my mum and dad. Yeah. Um, so I didn't, I didn't need money. I had their backing. You're... Um you, you're kind of looking at a mirror because I was 25 when I started uh, my own business and I, I did it uh, while I was living at home still. And then a year later I moved out and yeah, exactly like put the grind on, got out there. Yeah. Uh, so it's just an encouragement. Anything's possible given it's probably a bit of a higher barrier to entry at the moment given licensee costs and we can get into that. Uh, but yeah, so you basically loved people, put in the hustle, and your yeah. step up was making contact with another, ref- like it was just finding referral yep. referral partners, um, and that's how I approached it. I think in hindsight, I would have done it differently. Um, how would you have done it? Well, what I've learned is that you've just got to get out there and meet people, and I think it's actually really hard to meet people when you don't know anybody. You know, maybe I would have joined maybe some networking groups if I was starting starting out again from scratch, if I was a 24-year-old. But I think it's also asking the question and being confident in what you're delivering. Mm. You know, when I look back, maybe I thought I was a pretender or why, why are these people taking advice from me when there's all these other people out there? And then when one person would show a bit of interest and we would do, I'd do work with them, I'd just bed down that client and get it done and move on. Whereas now I would actually ask, who are your other professional advisors? Mm. You know, who do you know that I should be meeting? I'm a big believer that when I'm giving advice, I'm, I need to be meeting your financial advisor, your accountant, whoever it may be. And all your advisors need to be rowing in the one direction. We all need to be working together to manage you as a client. Um, but I just didn't ask those questions then because I, I, was, I was scared. Mm. What's your uh, revenue model? 
by that, do you mean uh, commission-based yeah, fee-for-service? Yeah, fee-for-service, do you charge um, for claims, all that stuff? Yep, it, it depends. We have a fee-for-service offering. Um, predominantly, it's commission-based, probably yep. 98% of my clients. I have about 1,000 clients, so the vast majority are commission-based. We we sort of pitch fee-for-service and commission off the back of our first discovery meeting. That's always, you know, free of charge. Let's Let's talk shop. Um, and I think the majority of clients are still comfortable with the commission model. Some clients will actually tell them that it's got to be fee for service. I'm not a big believer in just moving clients from one product to the to another just to line my pockets. I'd rather go back to them and say, "Hey, what you've got's not far away from where it needs to be. I'll charge you a fee, and we'll you know we'll amend it, mm. make some changes, and and move forward." Yeah. So it's interesting. This. Uh, uh, you know, risk-only specialist because I started out with this noble intent. I was a risk-only specialist. And then, you know, you have your first handful of meetings and back then there was no super rollovers. Yeah. And I couldn't actually, I believe I couldn't do risk-only. I had to look at their super as well because there was funding and all that stuff. How how did you do that part of the business? Like, because you just can't ignore a, a yeah. policy in super. I used to increase their policies inside super and I would just do it for free yep. because, you know, I wasn't confident enough at the time to charge a fee. Mm. I would charge a fee now, mm. 100%. But at that time, um, I, I was so caught up on just getting, say, their income protection or whatnot mm. um, that we, we gave away so much. Yeah, and I guess you've got to start somewhere. And then building on that, uh, if someone comes to you now and, you know, they've got an Australian super account and there's 400 grand of default death cover, you do a risk analysis and you're like, hey, you actually ended a million dollars, so there's a 600 grand deficit. Are you rewriting the group cover, building on top and doing rollovers? What are you doing in the business there? It depends. Yep. Um, I'd say that the majority of clients, we would be um, using a, a roller, a super rollover and using a retail product. Um, most of my clients are business owners and high net worth individuals these days. And I like the fact, I don't love products that are tethered to a super fund because if they want to set up a self-managed super fund or change super in the future can become problematic. The other part of it is I think retail insure, retail insurance often is more cost effective. Well, um, let's call a spade a spade. It's better. Yeah, it's well. better. It's just a better product. <laughs> yeah. So it's very, very rare that I would retain um, the policies inside the super fund unless it's for a health reason, Yeah. Um, unless it's being subsidized by an employer um, or if it was really cost effective. But I, I'd very rarely come across that. And Nick, the word on the street is that you are very good at key person insurance. It's, it's a, you know, you, you've become a little bit of a master at that. What's, what's the key to that and how do you position that with clients? Yep. Um, I think what I do with business owners is before we talk, I think what happens often is you'll get referred a client who's a business owner. And I think a lot of advisors might not be comfortable talking about business risk. Mm -hmm. So they just talk about individual and personal risk. For me, I can't give appropriate advice to an individual without understanding how the business operates. And that might be, obviously there's the key person risk to the business, but there's also the buy-sell risk as well. You know, it, does your business have a value? Is it a sellable asset? Um, what is, you know, do you have a shareholders agreement? What is the exit strategy? And we talk about that stuff and then we come back around to the individual mm. advice. Um, with key person, especially in this current market, um, the key to that is do the work up front, as in 
you know, I'll have a meeting with a client and I'll get an understanding of what they're chasing. I'll get a lot of information financially and in terms of how the business looks. And then I'm going to do research and then I'm going to speak to the underwriter. And I'm going to spend a lot of time with the underwriter pre-assessing that case before we even get to putting advice together. Because what the business wants or what the business thinks it's worth is not always what the insurer is willing to um, insure them from, especially at the moment, because mm. it's it's definitely harder to get it through underwriting. And uh, apologies if we're just getting really into kind of the granular, but I think it's fascinating to ask people these questions. What's your own personal view uh, on the stepped versus level debate? Yeah, it's a it's really frustrating when you see certain product providers absolutely gouging the level book at the moment. I, you know, I had a conversation a couple of years ago and I won't name the other advisor, but it was at an advisor board where they asked, um, the, you know, the, one of the product providers flat out, I think you should cease offering this if you can't, if you can't maintain its integrity. Mm. I like level premiums as a concept. I still do recommend level premiums to some in, to some clients um, if, you know, I sort of look at it and go, they're probably going to in- increase the stepped book two, three, four times before they increase the level book. So long-term, the level premium will be, um, well, I believe still cheaper in the long time, long-term and, and more affordable. Um, in saying that, it's very hard when you're trying to retain a client who you've sold level premiums. And I do tell my clients that these premiums are going to increase as well over time like I do preempt that well it's I think the whole sales thing is on the level premium uh, this will never increase because of your age correct year on year correct so we know if we hold it long term uh, you know theoretically it's it's going to be better off for you yeah my, my sales pitch is not that this is a fixed cost until you're age 65 mm. I'll tell them that that's the idea behind it but my sales pitch is that this is going to be affordable when you're 55 yeah as in it will increase over time but if you take the level premium now, it will be more affordable when you're 55 when things like cancers, heart attacks and whatnot come into play. Yeah, Nick, you're a bit of a wordsmith. How would you like it in terms of just managing conversations around price increases? How would you actually, what would your advice be to someone on that? How would you position it? You read my mind. Oh, sometimes I do that. I We've been in the room too long. I know. I know. <laughs> it's like osmosis. Yeah. Um, look, when I'm... My business is built on, you know, someone asked me the other day if there was three things you'd want to be described as. For me, it's honesty, it's transparency, it's integrity. And for me, it's just about don't sugarcoat it at the mm. end of the day. You know, sometimes you've got to rip the Band-Aid off and that, that can be exclusions and loadings and a whole heap of things that you come across. So for me, it's just about, um, one, understanding the product providers you work with, one, and why why is this happening? Which obviously, you know, they talk about high claims and, you know, being being a big cause of it, for example, and helping the client understand why. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I do um, often is take research with me to show like products and what they cost as well. And I think that really helps when you sit down with a client and go, hey, such and such has put their premiums up 20%. But if you look at the market, your product is still relatively cost effective mm-hmm. because let's face it, all the other providers are doing the same thing. There's no insurance company at the moment that's immune to premium increases. So I think it's about having an open conversation, helping the client understand the reason why this is happening, but then also being transparent enough to say, hey, this is the product you've got. This is why we recommended it. Um, This is the rest of the market. 
you're still in you're still in a good position. And I think you just I think you made a really great point that I'll highlight a bit is that it's also about just reminding someone of the value consistently and I and I certainly see business owners that do that have a really good response to or a better response to price increases or those difficult got to rip the band-aid off type conversations because they've built that value over time with things like claim stats. So maybe, you know, I guess the call out there is to think about your process. Do you have that drip feed on illustrating the value of the product that you've mm. sold? I want to ask you, like I, um, a friend of mine sent me a text message the other day and like you said, every insurance company is increasing uh, premiums. Level books are getting a really hard time. Yeah, I know uh, I got one. Yeah, exactly. And so have I. Now, As do I. We've all got level premiums. <laughs> yeah. You're not getting Christmas presents this year. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, mine as an advisor has got no commission in it. Um, so I can stomach a 20% increase. But uh, she showed me her um, husband's BT policy, there was an income protection policy that had a 73% increase in one year. That's a big jump. And I want to know, like, if you can give some type of encouragement to your fellow advisors out there that may have written a policy with BT two years ago and it's come off this two-year bloody premium guarantee or whatever they, they do, uh, you're reselling insurance at a double the price two years later. Um, how do we – and a lot of advisors, there could be 20 discussions a month happening and you're reselling the concept of insurance. To a client whose health has now changed. Yeah. Correct. Look, I, I had this discussion yesterday with a client and I've, I've, I don't have a big BT book, so thankfully that didn't affect me too much. But I had maybe five or six clients that um, are on income protection, on level premiums with BT. And one guy rang me yesterday, he's a doctor, and he his policy is within 12 months. Mm. And he just rang me up and said, Nick, I got this letter, 72.5%, you know, what's, what's your take on it? And I was transparent and honest, as I said. I said, I think it's really average uh, and it's really disappointing, a, a, an increase to that, of that volume. Like I understand 10, 15, 20%, but 72.5, like that's major, that's massive. And he said, well, what do we do? And I said, well, we need to make a time, myself and your wife, we need to sit down and we need to look at what this is going to look like in a couple of years and make a call on whether we retain this policy or we need to review it and make changes. And I understand that the, I understand that the, the cost for that client is fixed for two years, but they're sitting there right now going, well, There's it's, a cliff it's coming. fixed for two years. Yeah. What is that? That doesn't even matter. I'm paying all this money for the next two years for something that I'm just going to get slammed on. So it's a question of, do you jump first? Um, and for that client, you know, I look at... Which then you would cop the claw back. Yeah, and you've just sometimes... And for me as an established business owner, I'm willing to cop the claw back if that's what I have to do to, to satisfy the client. But I think about myself in my second year in business um, when, as we established, I didn't have um, a huge book behind me. And if I just picked the wrong horse, you know, at that time, that, that, can put, that could put people under. That totally. Definitely could put businesses under big BT supporters. And what I find, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to get off too off topic, but it's disappointing that um, a company like that has been rolling 25% discounts on upfront premiums over the last few years to buy business and they've just gouged it by 72. Like it's really hard to 
it's hard to cop. And it's hard, it's very hard as an advisor to have that conversation because you're the face of it. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's heavy days. And so ordinarily, uh, who, and I like to ask a lot of uh, practicing advisors who come on the show, uh, who are you writing at the moment yeah. and why? Yep. And what's your experience been? Because again, this is an industry podcast. So we're talking about the industry people. It's, you know, it's not just, you know, the good stuff, it's the challenging stuff as well. Like we just talked about the BT issue. Yep. Uh, so who are you writing and uh, yeah, how's your experience been? Well, of course, Zurich One Path. Um, no, but I do. I do write a fair amount of Zurich um, at the moment, not historically, but in the last two or three years, I've found them to be quite stable mm. as a provider and I've found the service to be quite strong. I have given Neos a bit recently. I just find, and, and to be honest, at first I was closed off to it, you know, when they came to market. But I think the um, the industry needed a little bit of a shake-up in their service standards and the way they're running that business from an advisor's perspective is, you know, they're doing they're making they're making my life easy, which mm. is which is fantastic. Um, we give a little bit to Tal, but I do find that their underwriting can be difficult to navigate medically. <laughs> Yeah, have you found? I, and this is this is just me from being in the My Risk Advisor group. Yeah. Um, have Tau been particularly strict on COVID? Definitely, definitely more At than times. other insurers. Um, or is it? Do you think it's coming from reinsurance land to a select pot of retail insurers? I think. I guess this comes back to that whole know your product provider. Totally. Um, as in, if I'm going to put business with an insurer, I'm going to do a fair bit of work before I recommend that insurer. So I've, if there's anything a little bit curly that I'm uncertain about, I'm having, we do a lot of pre-assessing um, with our, for our clients before we give advice. So if we actually get to the point of putting applications in. Um, you should know an outcome-ish. Correct. And yeah. that's probably one thing when you were asking before, Danny, about if you could go back in time, mm. you know, I'd say to myself, do the work before you do the SOA. I think, you know, a lot of, there's a stat that MetLife threw out the other day that 20% um, of applications are declined on average. So that means if you're doing 100 SOAs a year, mm. 20 or well, putting 100 applications in, 20 of those are going to get declined. Um, so do the work before. Yeah, what is your research? You say do the work. You've obviously got a very thorough pre-assessment process. What else will you dive into that you think is important to know about an insurer or yep. any sort of provider that you're working with? Because I say this because you put it really well and I'd never heard it before. Nick did come in and talk to our team and you, you mentioned that, you know, you're the custodian often as an advisor of the experience that your referral partners get and that can really damage that relationship and that's been a real you know you've you've had a lot of success with referral partnerships and you've obviously really protected that relationship what other research do you do to make sure that you know both your referral partnerships but your customers are also getting that good experience for me you know product is one part of it but if you look at all the all the product providers and line them up you can really build a case for for anyone, you know, everyone does something a little bit better than somebody else and the other insurers, you know, might be not as strong here, but really good there. Um, for me, it's about who's, it's actually who's going to help me manage my client experience the best. And, and it's not just about getting them on the books. It's about in five years time, it's about getting tax statements and it's about changing payment details and it's about claims experience and it's about for me it's about communication so how do you actually look at that like if you're looking yeah. at a new provider what's the actual things you would do 
to test that out? Is it the relationships you build? Like, how do you do that? I just dip my toe in. Okay. Danny, you know, like Zurich, for example, who I would have ridden more, more with in the last, you know, if I go back five years, I did a lot with AIA um, for a period of time. And then I started to dip the toe in a little bit with Zurich. And so then I wrote a fair bit with Zurich. And what I've been doing with, say, Neos recently is, you know, my BDM there, I'll, I'll start to build a relationship. And then I want to meet the administrator that I'm working with. And I won't deal with you unless I've got a dedicated underwriter that I can build a relationship with and I can have conversations with. Um, so if they're going to, if I, once I've met the BDM, who most of the time, you know, after 12 years, you know anyway, and if I'm comfortable with the underwriter and I've got an administrator, I'll give them a couple of cases and I just dip the toe in and see what the experience is like. And if it's good, I'll give them more. But if I'm, you know, we, we would, um, I'm a, as a sole advisor, we'd be doing 150 to 200 applications a year. Like I need to know that if I'm going to put 10 applications with you in a two-week period that you guys can handle the volume and it's going to work. Otherwise, it's... And, I'm just creating a rod for my back. And I don't have to train the underwriter myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely can't train an underwriter. Yeah. Um, yeah, so just on that, looking for an insurance provider, uh, you know, when I had my practice because, you know, I was like, you like level premium. I did hybrid from day one because I wanted long-term uh, insurer, long-term client, long-term good outcome. My concern with the newer insurers was that in five years' time, one of the big dogs come over and go, oh, Neos, scoop, and then we've got a closed book. What type of risk is that for you? At the moment, um, I would have said the same thing a couple of years ago. I think at the moment when you look at Zurich buying one path, you look at Tau buying Astron, you know, I'm sure there's some of the other bigger insurers that a lot of people whisper about falling by the wayside at some stage. I just don't think you can protect from it. You know, you, you're really, it's really a guessing game. Um, and so I think for me, it's now, you know, and I won't write with every insurer. I'm quite, I'm quite specific and I try to narrow it down to probably three or four that I'm, I'm working with at any one time. Yeah, and I, I guess my kind of revert to that was, um, you know, Astron. Um, was always owned by a bank. And yep. so it was almost a satellite thing as a cash cow. Yep. Where for me, having confidence in Zurich, Tau, MLC Life Insurance, these companies, their business is insurance. For sure. And maybe if Neos stays, as we want to be a specialist, specialist insurer, there can be longevity there. And we know we've probably got a clean book. So there yep. could be some good longevity there. Correct. Um, and then just my other question, if I may, Danny, um, pre-assessments, we all know that uh, you're a professional advisor and you're compliant. Yep. Um, you obviously wouldn't say to the client, hey, uh, I'm just going to take your medical stuff and see what AIA think, or is it more, give me some information, I'm going to go research some market, and then if you want to go ahead, hey, I think I've got a, an offering. Do you want to go to SOA stage? And then you say, okay, I checked out this. They didn't work, so I'm recommending this. So how I do it is when I... That was a long way to say, do you tell people... <laughs> my process. Yeah. Do you tell people is it Glenn's that, process, yeah. Nick? Is yeah. that- <laughs> and no, we don't talk product provider without a statement of advice, yeah. of course. Yeah. But um, no, what, what I do is um, I, have, I get referred to client. And the first thing we do is I just have an initial five minutes on the phone. This is the process. 
This is how we do things. Um, this is the information I'm going to send you, which is, you know, your client profiles, your FSGs, letters of authority, all of that. And part of that first email is a medical questionnaire that I've got, which basically goes through every medical question that, that the insurer is going to ask within to some extent. So that's, you know, if you're doing that after the first meeting... I'll do that prior to the first meeting. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I think you know where I'm getting at. It's like I get, I get them to hi, bring that to the first meeting. Yeah, but it's just like, hi, I've just met you. Uh, I had herpes two years ago. Yeah, but you've got to explain to the client that you know when you're engaging with me, mm. if we're going to go down the path of providing insurance advice, I need to understand your medical history because the insurance company is going to assess yeah. you medically. And I guess for me, that was a leading comment for maybe a new entrant into the industry. Yep. That no, you are the professional. Yep. The client does explicitly trust you. Correct. You might get the one in 20 who is cagey about anything. And my clients aren't direct clients either. They're coming to me from On trusted sources yeah. as well, I guess. And maybe that helps too. Um, but essentially, it's really about, you know, I, it's funny. People often ask me, what's not a good, what's not a good client for you? Mm. And I say to them, a bad client for me is someone who won't give me the information I need to do my job. Mm. So if you can't, give me the information or you don't trust me. If I sit down with a client and they go, Nick, I actually don't want you to understand my medical mm. situation. I'm just going to say you're not the right client for me because I actually can't advise you. If you're not going to be transparent and open, there's obviously a breakdown in trust there, but I've never had, I've never had. So that. you've got a pretty good strike rate because the clients are coming to you sizzling hot. Yeah. Relatively. Yeah. Yep. Um, a lot of the time. Better than probably lukewarm. 75, probably yep. 75% of the time. Yep. Um, you know, we talked. We did an episode with Phil Thompson, who's now doing 100% risk, more mum and dad land, yep. not yep. specialist uh, business insurance. Uh, he charges a commitment fee. For sure. Just to cover that pre-assessment part. Uh, and I think, Danny, what I'm noticing, uh, to be in risk now, you have to be in risk. It can't be, by the way, we can write a risk policy over here. You've got to be all in. And I think more people uh, who are into this risk thing, you've got to be doing the pre-assessments and you know, knowing what you're dealing with to set expectations before application stage and finding out at application stage that it's a decline because well, you should know. Correct. 90% of the time, 95% of the time. 100%. You've just got to, as you said, you've got to set an expectation. It's that whole setting an expectation because if I sit down with a client, right, and I put a statement of advice in front of them and I go, it's going to cost $5,000 and then I come back because it's been underwritten and they have a, a medical um, issue that's maybe it's a plus 50 or whatever it is and I come back and say, oh, you've actually been assessed um, and it's seven and a half grand now, you know, obviously I wouldn't have the conversation like that. But but it speaks just, to your efficiency as well because we're not doing ROAs. Well, correct. But the other thing is, is that the client's on the back foot and the client gets their back up because they're like, what do you mean? I've been rejected. Mm. Um, it's like, well, you haven't been rejected and you, and you sort of have to dance a little bit. Whereas if you go forward and you've done it all and you sit down with a client and say, look, Glenn, you know, you've got a history of X and X and we've actually pre-assessed you across the market. And in my opinion, the best provider is X. It is going to come with a 50% loading on your trauma. This is what it's all going to look like, or there's going to be an exclusion or whatever there is. They go, you know, if they go ahead with your advice, well, there's no surprises. Um, so you're not on the back foot. You've yeah, just so set it, an expectation. It's, it's absolutely setting realistic expectations and there's less surprises. And transparency is so important. I used to be an underwriter and I used to see the different ways people used to manage those exclusions. The people who used to be transparent, provide education around why, particularly, let's say, whether it's 50% or let's say an exclusion, a back exclusion. 
when they used to take the time to explain, look, you're covered for so many other things. Let's get yeah. this locked in before you, there are more things we've got to exclude. It's just the positioning of it. And the belief has to be that this is still a valuable contract. Correct. And there's two other parts to it as well. It's about having, a, and this is where working with underwriters you trust is so important. It's having a conversation with an underwriter as well as to why. Why is this a problem? Help me understand understand it so I can then position it to the client. Is this reviewable? What mm. do you need to actually it's a really see? Important point, yeah. What do you actually need to see for us to remove that loading or remove that exclusion? But also then making sure you've spoken with two or three other product providers before you've done the advice. So when they go, well, AIA's offered this, you can say, yeah, but Zurich offered this and MetLife offered that and Neos offered this. This is the best option for you. It's that certainty that you're giving the client, I've checked it out. I know this is your situation. This is what you're aiming for. And we, we, I'm still confident it's a really valuable contract. Whereas if you're going, oh, that doesn't really, yeah, that doesn't sound good. I'm going to check that out. The confidence and that certainty that the client, I can imagine, would have disappears a bit. Correct. And the second part to that is if they've got existing policies mm. and they don't have um, exclusions and you're not going back saying, oh, you've got an exclusion. So we're actually going to have to keep this and do this and change that, but we're going to reduce this, but increase that. And they see that this just just became really complicated. Yeah. So I think it's been a fascinating discussion. We've got probably less than five minutes. Yeah. Um, And I think so many people can learn about their advice process from this conversation. Just quickly, what are you doing with claims? So we manage claims in-house. For clients of ours, we don't charge a fee to manage a claim. Um, For clients, we get referred claim work as well and we'll charge a flat fee um, to manage a claim. How much? Um, generally, on average, for a lump sum claim, it tends to be about three $3,000 plus GST. I'm a big believer no in No win, no fee. fee. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much something, something along those lines. Um, look, I think for me, and I run that process very similar to my advice process, where the first meeting is to it's discovery, right? Understand the situation, understand what you've got, and then I come back with a solution. Do I think we should claim? Mm. Do I think we shouldn't claim? So if we're putting a claim in, I'm pretty confident that we're going to get the result. Otherwise, I would, you know. Yeah, you've just got to pick your battles. And, Correct. you know, the older we get as people, not just as advisors and- I'm you know, not getting old. Yeah, Glenn. no, you're not. <laughs> um, it's saying no more and um, saying no to dickheads. You know what yeah, I mean? It's yeah. like- I don't That's know. put softly, I, isn't thankfully, it? Thankfully, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't have any clients that are dickheads, thankfully. Exactly, because you've said no to them. It's about, I think, I think when you start a business, you just take anyone. You just take anyone. But you do get to a point, and where I'm at now, it's back to, the, I mentioned it before, is, hey, this is what I need to give you advice. If you're not going to work with me, I can't help you. Mm. And, you know, it's easy to say now, 12 years in, and we've got a steady flow and I've got a book behind me, it's very different when you're starting out. Um, and you're down you to your last 50 make, bucks. Yeah, you're down to your last 50 bucks and you don't know if you're going to be able to make mm. your next car payment. I've, um, I've got one question around, you know, the industry. We all are here because we think it's a fabulous industry. What are you actually excited about in the next kind of couple of years? Like what's the big opportunity that you think risk specialists should have their eyes on? I think there's a huge opportunity at the moment because it's change. Change creates opportunity. You know, the income protection market is going to be unrecognisable in five years to what it is. I think there's a lot of products, well, not products, a lot of providers, sorry, who are being quite innovative around sort of the health space and whatnot. I think the stigma around 
financial advisors or an insurance salesperson are, are sort of being starting to be removed. Where you know the idea of cleaning up the industry and increasing education standards and putting us forth as a prof- yeah a, a professional um, you know um, advisors is such a positive thing. Um, and from a business perspective, your point before Glenn, it's becoming a, a specialist area for in risk. And there's a lot, you know, I've had a lot of conversation with a lot of financial advisors who have approached me to say, we don't want to do it anymore. Do you want to buy our books? Mm. Um, do you want to buy our books and we'll refer the work to you and you can be our outsourced insurance go-to person. And it's because it's getting, it's harder. And, you know, that's also driven probably by remuneration coming down as well, but it is becoming a specialization. Um, and so for anyone that's thinking of starting an insurance business, I think there's a lot of opportunity out there, especially the banks getting out of it as well. So I want to talk in finishing up uh, future plans. You've got three staff members. You've got a decent-sized book of clients. What's enough for you? When do we stop this new business yeah, machine? It's an interesting question. I think it's um, it won't be – it won't be – for me, I'm looking for – the right person to join the business. Um, you know, I've made mistakes in the past where I've grown for the sake of growth. I'm like, this is what I want it to look like. I need to find people for those roles and it didn't work. Um, and that's not anyone's fault other than we're all, we're all different. You know, we all work differently. So I think what I've learned is if I can find the right person, I'd like to bring people into the business that I can then mentor. Because one of, one of the things I would say to any young advisor is find mentors and that can be underwriters, that can be BDMs, that could be other advisors is actually get out there and ask questions. Don't be, don't be afraid to ask questions that you think, you know, might be stupid or you ask questions when you think you should know the answers, find mentors. So I'm really interested in, in going down that path of finding some young people that I can then bring through. I've got two of the girls in my team currently um, doing their education to become advisors. And if they want to become advisors, well, then we'll go down that path and we'll grow them through. I think my business is ultimately moving towards a place where I'll really just focus in on the business advisory work. And then I'll bring some younger younger advisors through who I can then refer on um, some of the mum and dad work, um, the seven o'clock, you know, the seven o'clock meeting at their home, 45 minutes away. Yeah, that um, we've all done. And yeah, yeah, and I still do that now, um, but I'm ready for somebody else mm. to take that on. And I think, yeah, I think you said it well. It's like when we're younger, we want the empire and all that, but, you know, I don't want the stress. And the growing slow and organic, you know, bringing advisors up within, they know the team, they know the culture. And the most important thing, they know the clients. So your transition of, oh, you know, so-and-so is going to be your advisor now. I'm still yeah. here. You got my number. But uh, yeah, I think it's a really good answer. So well done. Yeah. I think um, if you asked me five years ago, I would have said world domination. Yeah. But um, once you have children and things change, you realize that you don't want to run 900 miles an hour. Mm. Um, I'm getting old now, Glenn. Mm. So I just don't have it in me. Yeah. Um, so I think, you, yeah, I'm, I'm coming towards a more balanced end of hopefully my career where we'll continue to grow we're definitely growing mm. um, but yeah I'm ready to really find the, some people to grow with us growing the right way I think yeah definitely know. well thank you so much Nick that's been so many nuggets of gold from your journey and thank you Glenn my pleasure but more importantly thank you to you for listening we appreciate you listening and if you are encouraged by this podcast who is another advisor or financial advice industry professional that you could forward this episode to for some encouragement 
Thank you so much for listening today. If you are in the advice world and you've made it this far, my question to you is, who can you forward this episode to? Thank you so much for listening. This was made possible because of My Risk Advisor. You can head over to the Facebook group, My Risk Advisor, and join in on the conversation. 